Okay, guys, we got a lot of ground to cover today, and there's just a kind of a, like a, I guess, a qualifier of this sermon. Always a good way to start a sermon. Uh, there's a lot of history in this one, so if you get bored by that, I'm going to really try to crack a lot of jokes and make it fun. So um, let's grab a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 12. You can pull out those message notes if you're new. We're studying this book, uh, the book of Acts, which tracks the spread of Christianity over the first 30 years of the church's history. So the church is brand new, 30 years, and we're about eh, 12 or 14 years into it uh, with chapter 12. This book was written by a medical doctor named Luke. And really, the book is the result of a command given to us by Jesus to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this is a mission that we're still on. We're still working on this. It began in Jerusalem, and Jesus said, but spread it to every people group and over the entire world and, and, and give everyone, the Lord said, a chance to hear about the gospel in a way they can understand. And so that's what we're still working on. All right, we're going to pick it up in chapter 12, uh, verse one, where we're going to see a new wave of persecution hits the church in Jerusalem. Here's what it says. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, Herod proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put Peter in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Real quick, he has to wait. Herod has to wait until the Passover is done because there was no capital punishment allowed during the Passover. So he has to wait for the holiday weekend to end before he can kill Peter. Verse five, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by God or made to God by the church. Okay, so let's talk about this because uh, there's a lot here. Luke is giving us another first in the church. There's a lot of firsts in the book of Acts, first service, first sermon, these kinds of things. So James is the first apostle to be martyred, the the 12, uh, tragically. Herod figures out that a good way to get leadership chips is to kill Christians. And so he does this with James and then he's like, hey, that worked. So now he's imprisoned Peter and is about to do the same for him. Now, James, there's multiple Jameses in the New Testament and sometimes it can get mixed up. It's easy to get them mixed up. So the James in Acts chapter 12 is not the same James as the book of James who was written by Jesus' half-brother named James. Uh, That James is different than this James. Got it? Clear? So this James, Luke gives us a little bit of clarity. This is the apostle John's brother. John's brother's multiple Johns too. But the apostle John and James were brothers and Jesus gives him a nickname. We talk about nicknames a lot. Uh, Billy's not my real name. <laughs> it's my nickname. Uh, Will I am is my real name. Um, <laughs> Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder, Matthew 4.22. Their daddy's name Zebedee. He's a successful fisherman. And so that's who we're talking about. So this brings up an issue. When you're studying the Bible, you come across a lot of different people and their names. And then sometimes people have the same name and it's not the same person. And it's kind of confusing at times. Uh, There's two Jameses. There's three Johns. There's four Marys, at least. Two Sauls. Numerous Simons. Four Philips. 
two Lazaruses and two Judases. So part of my job as a Bible teacher is to help us kind of keep track of all of this so that we can continue to understand the scripture. So the goal for me is to decomplicate. Turn to your neighbor and say decomplicate. Pretty sure that's not a word. Uh, So in that, another person mentioned here is a guy named Herod. And (laughs) good news, bad news. The bad news is there's six Herods mentioned in the New Testament. And the good news is we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna teach you all of them right now. Uh, and hopefully you'll get it straight. So l- listen, in, in our text, Luke says Herod laid violent hands. And so the question is, on some in the church, killing James, which of the six Herods is it? The thing is, Herod, you're reading the Bible and Herod pops up. And then at the end of chapter 12, for example, he dies. He dies a pretty gruesome death. If you're into this kind of thing, this is cool. Like the Bible's for you. Like he gets kind of eaten alive by worms from the inside. Ew, gross. Okay, it's in the Bible. And, um, but then a few chapters later, Herod comes up again in chapter 25. And it's like, wait a minute, I thought he died. And he did die. And the reason this Herod, is it's a different Herod. They're different Herods. Uh, they all have the same name. And sometimes the Bible doesn't tell you like, you know, which one is which. And so I would like to decomplicate the Herod. So I made you a chart and you can cut this chart out and shove it in your Bible for the rest of your life. Um, So the Herodian dynasty all started with the guy at the top of the chart named Herod the Great. He was the OG Herod. All right. Here's his mugshot. This is the Herod that you probably are thinking of because he's the most famous for a lot of reasons. For one thing, he's the Herod that interviews the Magi in the Nativity story, this famous passage that we study every Christmas. Uh, most you know, pastors are like, oh, there's parts of the Bible we never get to. And then there's some parts we have to cover every single year. And, and the Nativity story is. And so he comes up and he, remember the Magi come, they're looking for the baby Jesus. And he's like, hey, there's a new king. Well, let, we'll tell Tell, tell me where this king is so that I can, I can worship him too. And he has ulterior motives. He wants to kill him because he's a pretty insecure fella. And we all know the story. And so uh, he then ends up murdering all of the little children in Bethlehem. They call this the, the massacre of the innocents, trying to get to Jesus. Jesus escapes. So uh, this is really indicative of him as an individual. He's a bad guy. He's cruel. He's violent. Uh, even his children are terrible. His grandchildren are terrible. They're all evil and unpleasant leaders, and there's a ton of them. And I just have one thing to say about him. Good riddance, okay? I'm glad he's gone. Uh, decades before, let's give you some history. Decades before Herod the Great shows up in the Massacre of the Innocents, he comes upon the scene in world history because he makes good friends with a guy in the Roman Empire named Octavian. Octavian is a a Roman leader, and they are both living in Rome, and they become buddies. Octavian was the right friend to have. Octavian came to the surface following Julius Caesar's assassination by Cassius and Brutus, and Octavian assumes power of the Roman Empire along with Mark Antony and another guy, the second triumvirate. Eventually, This guy, Octavian, rises to power even further and becomes the emperor of Rome that we know as Augustus Caesar. So our months, October and August, 
are from this guy, uh, Octavius or uh, Augustus, same guy. So after Augustus comes into power, he awards his buddy Herod the title King of Judea. And he sends him to Palestine to rule on behalf of the Roman Empire. Part of the reason why uh, Augustus names Herod the Great the king of Judea is because not only are they buddies, but Herod the Great has some Jewishness in him. He's got a little bit of Jewishness in his legacy. And so it was thought that he could relate to those whom he was ruling over. And so Herod's whole approach was to rule on behalf of Rome while simultaneously attempting to appease the Jews under his power. Now, the big thing about Herod, you may know him from, is he was known as antiquities, one of antiquity's greatest builders. He was a prolific builder, an architect guy. His most significant accomplishment was in Jerusalem, he took the the temple that was built in the Old Testament by Zerubbabel, the second temple, this is in Ezra and Nehemiah, he brought that down to its foundations and rebuilt it in a more grand structure. I mean, it was just eye-poppingly beautiful. So this is known as Herod's temple. So not only does he rebuild the temple within Judaism, he completely upgrades everything. He expands the temple grounds. He builds a wall around the temple plaza. That wall still stands part of it. He added towers and porticos and structures. Solomon's portico that we studied earlier in the book of Acts was part of his work. This work took decades to complete. He hired over 10,000 skilled laborers amongst the Jewish people. We think that possibly Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, was one of those workers. He could have been working in that trade because they were, they were carpenters or in the, uh, in the Greek, technon is the word. Technon means carpenter or builder. Uh, and so uh, that was what Jesus was. He learned this from Joseph, his dad. Joseph possibly worked on the Temple Mount project from Herod. Directly adjacent to the brand new temple, Herod erects a massive building a Roman military fort, and he names it the Antonia Fortress after Mark Antony, whom he kind of had a little man crush on. He kind of idolized him. This structure was so that the Romans had total power control over the busiest site in Israel. It was a daily reminder of the Jews of who truly was in power. Even though they had this brand new temple You just look over to the right if you're facing the front of it, and there's this big Roman military garrison fortress. And it's it's an implicit message saying, yeah, you know, your God is your God, but, but we are in charge. Pontius Pilate held one of Jesus' trials in the fortress courtyard, as well as the Lord was scourged with Roman whips at the fortress Antonia before his crucifixion. And if we ever do go to Israel on a trip, uh, we will visit. The, the floor of the fortress is still there. It's still there, guys. And here's a, here's a picture of it. It's an artist's rendition. The courtyard floor where Jesus was whipped, presumably near there, we can go and visit. And it's one of, it's one of the places where Jesus shed his blood. So this is an important structure. Herod also constructed Masada, the Herodium, the city called Caesarea Maritima, which is one of my favorite sites 
a massive palace at Jericho and several other spectacular buildings uh, in terms of just the grandeur of them. He was a great builder. He was a prolific builder, but he was a terrible, awful jerkwad. We don't like him. He is one of history's baddest eggs. Great builder, yes. Great morals, no. The opposite. He was married at least 10 times. He had over a dozen children with all these baby mamas. He murdered three of his wives. He murdered uh, three of his sons. He murdered an uncle. And he also murdered just one of his mother-in-laws. Um, <laughs> Augustus Caesar, remember his buddy? Augustus Caesar is quoted on record as saying, I'd rather be one of Herod's pigs than his sons. <laughs> I guess... Herod had a rather fragile ego. Now, one of his wives he killed was his favorite wife. He killed his favorite wife. We don't know. Her name was Miriamne, and she was Jewish. She was fully Jewish. And when he killed her, out of, I think, guilt or something, he constructed a tower on the Temple Mount in her honor, which is called Miriam's Tower. And those foundation stones are still in place. Herodian stones. And again, if we ever get to, to, to visit Israel, maybe we'll go see uh, Miriam's tower, at least the, the stones of her foundation stones. He was such a crazy narcissist. He actually named himself Herod the Great, you know, <laughs> asterisk, like stay away from this guy. When he was at the end of his life, he fell ill and he, he sensed that he was about to die. So he ordered dozens of prominent leaders in Jericho to be imprisoned and then he signed an executive order that on the day of his death, they all be executed because on the day that he died, he knew no one would mourn him, but he still wanted tears of mourning. And so he would off all of these people and he would get his tears. Turn to your neighbor and say, what a jerk. You don't have to say that. <laughs> Fortunately, his sister intervened after he died and countermanded that order. So that didn't happen. So that's Herod the Great in a nutshell. Uh, and, uh, and if you look at that chart, he's at the top. Now, he had a lot of sons. And on your chart, these are just the Herods mentioned in the Bible. There's lots of Herods and there's just six. So let's look at the next box um, down the next level on your left. This is Herod Archelaus. Herod Archelaus or Archelaus was one of the sons of Herod the Great. He's mentioned in Matthew 2. He ruled a part of his dad's empire after Herod the Great died, but he only ruled for a couple of years, and he got so many complaints that Augustus fired him and banished him to France. They didn't, it wasn't called France then. And, and this is important because some of the Roman org chart changed right here over Palestine. So you still had all these other Herods, but now you had an, another kind of parallel leadership structure that Augustus installed. He started putting in what were called procurators who were also leading alongside the other Herods. And so Pontius Pilate is one of those procurators. And so I know you've been curious about why there were both Herods and procurators. And now that question is finally answered and you're welcome. Um, <laughs> Next on your chart is Herod Antipas, who is most famous for beheading John the Baptist in Matthew 14. 
Uh, John the Baptist around here, we just call JB because we don't want to mix him up with the other John. So JB, you may recall, was killed because he publicly criticized Herod Antipas for marrying a woman named Herodias. Herodias was also part of this family and they intermarried, which may explain why they had bulgy skulls. No, I don't know. I'm just making that up. Herodias was a woman who was married to the Herod next to Herod Antipas on your chart, Herod Philip I, but she husband swapped. She decided that Philip, I don't know, she got tired of him, and so she went over and married her brother instead. And this was all done, I know, ew, gross. Uh, Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. This was a gross family. And John the Baptist, J.B., This was all done publicly, and he's like, you can't do that. You can't do that. This is not biblical. And so he calls him out for it publicly, and Herodias has her little feelings hurt. And you know, uh, if you read Matthew 14, that he, he was beheaded. So remember, this is a morally bankrupt family that has absolute power. This is like a cross between the Hitlers and the Kardashians, okay? That's what this is. Now, the reason there's asterisks on your handout for an Antipas and Philip on your handout is because Herod the Great had a lot of sons, and he named two of his sons Antipas and two of his sons Philip. I don't know why. I guess they ran out of names. So these, these other brothers are not specifically named in, your, in the Bible, but Herod the Philip II, uh, he built the town called Caesarea Philippi whom he named in honor of Augustus Caesar. This town does show up in your Bible. It's where Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Messiah. And Christ says, on this rock, I will build my church. That happens in Caesarea Philippi. That's not the Philip on your handout. It's his little brother, Herod Philip II. Decomplicated, right? Okay, the last box uh, on that row is Herod Aristobulus. He is a son of Herod the Great. He is not mentioned in the Bible. He was one of the sons of Miriamne. Remember Miriamne, the favorite wife? So Herod kills his mom, and then Herod kills him. But before he dies by the hand of his dad, he has two sons whom he also names, both of them, Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa I is the one in our text this morning. Yay, we got there, everybody. (laughs) No one's clapping. (laughs) <laughs> this is hard. Okay, so this, so so Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa the first, uh, he dies in chapter twelve. This is in AD forty four. Then his kid brother Herod Agrippa the second surfaces in Acts chapter twenty five. Same name, different Herod. Paul talks to him and almost leads him to Christ. Uh, so uh, those are guys. Those, and by the way, we'll get to Acts twenty five in about two years. So. <laughs> Eventually, six Herods in the New Testament decomplicated. Am I right? Okay, maybe, maybe, hopefully. But if, if this is just more confusing to you, please accept my apologies. Um, that's not my intention. I'm really wanting to help. Uh, but here's why I, I did this. For me as a pastor, one of my jobs and my passions is to help 
each person that, that calls this place home. My job is to help you study your Bible effectively and fruitfully. And when, when you hit parts in the Bible that are confusing, part of my job is to, is to help you through that. And this is one of those times. And so, so really, this, the, the, the whole reason we're doing this is so that you, when you're in the scriptures and you're digging deeper, you can help, it helps you follow the many plot threads of history that are interwoven into the biblical tapestry. When we study our Bibles, we are studying world history, actual world history. You can't really teach through the book of Acts in a real in-depth way and not mention Julius Caesar and not mention the Roman Empire and not just talk about these real people of history because it's in here. It's in here. And, and so it helps us immerse ourselves into the true story of scripture. I also think it's, pointing out, it's worth pointing out that this fact is that Christianity flourished even under awful political leadership. Uh, the Herods were awful. And, and yet Christianity flourishes, it explodes, it's expanding. It's, 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 it's amazing that God is still working even when the umbrella of, of politics is just so antithetical to them. Yes, Christians died, amazing Christians died. Christians like James, James who was one of Jesus' closest friends when Jesus was in his public ministry. But here's the thing, we know that there were Christians in the first century that were close to the Herods. Later on in the book of Acts, it mentions a person in the church in Antioch who was of Herod's household. So the gospel snuck its way in, even to the, the hallowed halls of power where people were, were evil and people were stymieing the gospel or attempting to, but through Christians having private conversations and reaching out to their friends and leading those to Christ, the church still expanded. And this is good news for us because we live in a dark time, do we not? We can, put, we, can, we, can, we can draw encouragement from this. When we consider the many governments and places around the world that are diametrically opposed to the gospel, and yet it still prevails, and this is one of the great lessons from the book of Acts, that although some may stiff arm us, we serve a God who is more powerful, more wise, and more beautiful, and his message of love and forgiveness will win Friends, it will win. Okay, so for the rest of the chapter, let's continue. We see that Herod Agrippa is trying to get Peter now. We think that Agrippa has heard about Peter's propensity to escape from jail. Uh, you may recall from Acts chapter 5, remember Peter's already been broken out of jail once. So Peter gets held by four squads of soldiers. This is 16 Roman soldiers. And we think what this meant was was there was four squads, so four soldiers, four soldiers, four soldiers, four soldiers, each taking six-hour shifts, and one, would, one squad would come in six hours, and then they would uh, rotate. All right, let's keep reading verse six. Now, when Herod was about to bring Peter out, so this is the night before Peter was to be executed. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. 
and a light shone in the cell. I can't, I don't know what's so good. Uh, He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands like angel force. And the angel said, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And Peter went out and followed the angel. Peter did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city and it opened and it opened of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Okay, so Luke is giving us some details Okay, there's the, you see the four soldiers. There's two that are chained to Peter, one on each side. And then there's two guarding the various entrances into the interior prison. So humanly speaking, Peter has no shot at escaping this. And Peter knows that tomorrow he dies. Peter knows that unless God does a miracle, his race has been run. And that he will meet Jesus face to face now. And yet... He's sound asleep. He is like sleeping like a baby on Benadryl. I mean, this guy is just, he's conked out on the floor, very uncomfortable. And he's, he's, he's got no stress. He's got no anxiety. Peter's good. Oh, I love this. He knows where he's going. He knows that Jesus is with him. He has total peace. And in the middle of this great night's sleep, an angel comes in. And I love this. I think Luke is being a little bit um, rascally here. The angel, it says, struck him. I think, I didn't say, I think he kind of kicks him. I think the angel kicked. You know that show, Touched by an Angel? This is, I got kicked by an angel. You know, it's like, (laughs) and it doesn't say how hard, but I imagine the angel was like, oh, it's my one opportunity. (laughs) You know, come on, man, get up, get up, get up. And, you know, I don't know what to say, but like Peter's like, oh, okay, man, what is this, man? What are you doing? And then he opens his eyes and it's an angel in the light. And he's like, oh, hi, hello. And, uh, and then it's funny because it's like toddler Peter, right? The, the angel's like, okay, now stand up, Petey, and put your sandals on <laughs> and put your clothes on. No, 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 no. Wrap your cloak around you. You're going to need that. All right. And, um. And this miraculous escape takes place, and he's out. Another miraculous escape, another miraculous rescue. And, you know, here's the, here's the thing. You read this, and it's really, it's really quite remarkable. But back in verse 5, Luke gives us this really important detail. He says that the entire church in Jerusalem was praying for Peter. We don't know how many Christians were left in Jerusalem. Remember, the church was huge, and then the persecution happens, and they scatter around to towns and cities and villages. And so, but there were some Christians left. I think there was probably quite a few because they just went underground, maybe a few thousand. But they all somehow got word, and they're praying for their guy. They're praying for Peter. And, and, and Luke says they're earnestly praying for him. And then the angel comes. 
and then the miraculous rescue. And that order is important. And what we can derive from that is that, guys, there is power in prayer. God answers prayer. That when we pray, God listens. And there's a specific type of prayer. This is unified prayer and fervent prayer of a group of believers in the same church. This is a corporate prayer where all the church is there praying as one. They're of one heart, one mind, one focus, praying in the same direction. God calls us to different types of prayer. There's different modes of prayer. Probably the most common is just, it's just you and God and you're talking to God. And that's, just, that's prayer. You know, and it's, yeah, maybe you're in your house, you're in your car, you're on a hike, and you're just in a quiet place and you're just speaking to the Lord. You're pouring your heart out to him. Another type of prayer is if you're married, if you're married and your spouse is a Christian, is, is, is a prayer as a husband and wife. You're, the two are one, Jesus says. And, and it's like, you know, you're just, you're grabbing hands with your spouse and you're praying. And, you know, for Christy and I, my wife, you know, we're just, we're super busy. Anybody relate? You know, you're just really busy. And sometimes prayer is like one of us will just be about ready to head out the door. Hey, let's pray. And you just grab the person. And then for us, it's usually the person initiating is the one who's praying because the other person's just like, I was literally about to go. Can we just, can we just, anybody with me? And so and you, just, you do pray, you pray together. Another type of prayer as a family, you pull the kids in. And you're just like, man, you got little kids and it's just difficult. And, you know, you just kind of, you grab them and you sit on them. That happens with college age too. I mean, you just, you just get them still and you're just praying together as a family, as a Bible study, as a community group. It's a type of corporate prayer where you gather with your brothers and sisters in the church. And then you see this one here, the call to pray as a church body, church prayer, corporate prayer. It's powerful. There's something unique about this, and it's in the Bible. And so at Redeemers, we, we dedicate several days a year to corporate prayer, as you're probably aware. We just uh, gave you uh, information about our next one, which is on December 5th. And this is, this is us, just the elders saying, okay, guys, the staff, let's pray together. And we'll devote an entire day, and you come to the facility if you, if you can't make it, you can pray at your house corporately or wherever you are, but we've got prayer guides so that we're all praying in the same direction. Another one is every year we've been devoting the last few years, the beginning of each year, we devote an entire service on Sundays to corporate prayer. This year, that's going to happen on December 31st, which is, which is uh, coming up, and we're going to dedicate 2024 to the Lord and this is a cool service. If you've not been, we do, we do prayer and then we do pancakes. Prayer and pancakes. They both start with P. They're both really great. So church, what I'm saying is we have to commit to this. We have to commit to building this into our lives. This is important to God. It's important that we gather and pray together. For the church in Jerusalem, they prayed for Peter. Uh, for us, we have different prayer initiatives that the Lord lays on our hearts. And we just do that. We're Oh, what's the church praying for this time? Oh, how can I add my prayer, my faith into the family's faith? How can we together support each other? And, 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 and how can we pool our prayer? And how can the power of our unified, fervent prayer, how can that change things that God is up to? Now, that's a mystery. 
We don't know. We don't know how this works entirely. We do know that we're called to pray. And so let's commit to this. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what they said, the church, in their prayers. This is fascinating. There's a lot of detail there. Well, you told us about the chains and the two soldiers, Luke, but you didn't tell us what they prayed for, like what their prayers were. I think there's a lesson in this. I don't think it's as important our actual words. Have you noticed that sometimes in prayer, people are reluctant to pray because they, they don't talk so good and they don't, they don't want to say the wrong things in prayer. Do you know what I'm talking about, guys? You're looking at me like a little bit like, what are you talking about? Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, we're good. And, and, and what we see here is that with the Lord, it's not about using the proper words or saying, quote, the right things. It's not how good you are at saying the right types of sentence structures in your prayers. You know what it's, it's about? It's about how good God is, not about how good we are at talking. It's about the power of God, and it's about who we're praying to, not how we're praying in terms of like, oh, you, 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 you said the right thing. Prayer is not about technique. It's about God. So we don't spend a lot of time around here trying to get things just right. And if you're ever in a prayer meeting where there's prayer out loud, you don't have to feel insecure about having your turn. So many Christians, so many Christians feel that, boy, leave the praying to the eloquent ones. Leave the praying to the ones who can speak publicly well. Well, that's not necessarily what we see in scripture. We just talk to God and we lay our burdens and requests out by faith to him. So the power of prayer isn't in the words and the power of prayer isn't in currying up the right feelings when I pray. Did you know that you can pray and feel doubtful at the same time? You can feel scared and pray. You can feel angry and frustrated in prayer. Actually, as a dad of a middle schooler, I would say 80% of my prayers were done in frustration, all right? <laughs> it's not about having the right... If we, if we waited to feel the right feelings before we prayed, none of us would pray. We'd get praying done about, I don't know, 2% of the time. Usually what happens is... The prayer comes first and then the feelings follow if they even ever actually come online. So the power of prayer is rooted in the Lord and in his goodness and in his abilities and in his sovereignty. Our job is to ask the Lord. Our job is to pray. God's job is to answer the prayer however he sees fit. All of God's answers to our prayers are always what's best, even if we can't see it. It doesn't necessarily say this in the text, but I would imagine that James, who was killed, was also prayed for. So you had two apostles, and you had a lot of prayer happening, and God answers the prayers for Peter, but not for James. And I don't, I don't understand. Do you understand? I don't know the mind and heart of God, but I do know that whatever God decides is always good and always right and always best. Just because I can't understand it in my finite understanding, my finite brain, my finite perspective doesn't mean 
that somewhere outside of my ability to see that God isn't doing something perfect and good. And that's what he is. And that's who he is. And that's what he always does. And so friends, this teaches us quite a bit about prayer. And the point of it all is that we are encouraged to pour ourselves out to the Lord in prayer together by ourselves in all settings. All right. Well, my time is, is done and I'd like to just spend a moment in applying the last part of this with a short prayer together. Can we pray corporately for just a moment? Please bow your head with me. Well, Lord, we thank you once again for your holy scriptures, for the book of Acts. And in this particular text, we see so much. And I, I thank you, Lord, that, that our hope is never in having the perfect conditions politically for the church to flourish. I thank you that the church, which is your body, of which you're the head of, Jesus, your church will prevail regardless of who's in charge humanly. And we love that, Lord. And in, and in days where, where, where our leadership is, 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 is up in the air and we're not quite sure, Lord, what we are sure about is you and your power and your love and your goodness. And I'm also praying, Lord, that you would help us to be a church that prays, that pours our heart out to you, that gives you our burdens. And like the church in Jerusalem, they prayed fervently They prayed earnestly. I'm praying that our church would continue on and do the same. Lord, help us to partner with you in this. Give us the faith and give us the the perspective, Lord, that we need to be a prevailing church. Lord, I love you. Everyone in here that knows you loves you. And we lift your name up now. And as we worship, as we close out our service, I'm praying. It's praying for every person here. You would fill us up. And we ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen.